This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, Robbie. Hi, Ernie. How's it going? How are you doing? Going really well, actually. I had a wonderful chat with our friend uh, Ross this morning. Oh, good. I was kind of kicking myself that I didn't record it because it was quite hilarious. But uh, uh-huh. so I figured I should start recording again. So. All right. But, yeah. yeah. When I called him up, I, he has this, you know, leave something witty and interesting on your voicemail or whatever. So I ended up telling him, uh, like my friend Robbie says, I bless you in Jesus' name. Uh-huh. And I don't know if I had anything more witty than that, but uh, it made me think of you as a answering machine message. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I remember something. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, good. I, uh, I'm actually working on an article on the role of prayer in missions and just reflecting on how uh, how much I have not relied on prayer and uh, <laughs> how, how wonderful. Oops, I think my headphones may have just, uh, given up. Hang on, let me see. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, yeah, I think my... For some reason, my headphones just unpaired from my phone. Mm. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, reflecting on how much better it is to be resting and trusting in Jesus than to trying to make things happen. And mm. uh, it's enabled me to work through the current time pressures without uh, compromising uh, my attention to family in ways that I mm. have badly done in the past so yeah uh, yeah yeah so is the end in sight uh yeah i uh, finished up today with what i needed to do for mission frontiers and uh oh. pretty pleased with that and then tomorrow is uh it's a separate magazine that i'm working on this article for and tomorrow's oh. the day and so i'd 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 wanted to start writing earlier on that but uh i'm just trusting that jesus knows that and if he had wanted me to start earlier i would have been able to that uh, if i if i'm supposed to get something in that i'll have it done in time tomorrow and if not that's okay too right i'm not in charge of the outcomes i'm just in responsible for obedience and uh, so it's a not feeling responsible to make things happen is a new one. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. This is what I was talking about with Ross. Is uh, I'm at this new startup, and kind of this week turns out to be the week we're trying. Like I spent the first month and a half just kind of listening and sitting in on conversations and trying to understand what's going on. Right. And for various reasons, I felt like this is the week to actually try and make changes. Uh huh. And the uh, there's there's been a series of different things that have kind of been piling on top of each other, but the the fulcrum, the point of leverage, seems to be defining the engineering process. Okay. And so I spent the last 48 hours, uh, you know, generating this, and there's this weird, I don't know what the right word for it is. It's 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 um like when you have a plan and you know you're going to do something and you set aside time to do it and you do it, that's one kind of thing. And uh-huh. the other is you find yourself in a situation 
and time is of the essence and you have no idea what you're doing, but it's better to do something than to do nothing. Uh-huh. And so you just yeah. cram stuff, crank stuff out as quickly as possible. I guess flying by the seat of your pants is probably the right metaphor for that. Right. And so I've been doing that. It's like, okay, I'm just going to write documents to get the ball rolling and they could be brilliant. They could be idiotic. It doesn't matter. It's better to have something than nothing. Right. And because it gives people something to react to. Right. And, you know, rather than waiting indefinitely. And there's a certain grace in not having enough time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I told you the story how my cousin called up and like said, hey, we just arrived this morning. Can we get together for lunch? Oh. Uh, you know, and like, which was awesome because if he had said two weeks ago that he was coming, we would have to clean the house and we would have to cook something. And right. But since we found out like three hours in advance, it's like, okay, whatever we can do is fine. And right. so it was actually less stress. And right. so in the last 48 hours, I mean, kind of, or I guess 72 hours now, since Monday morning, I've been on this mad dash. And one of the things that came up was, uh, it's interesting, like like some stuff I make up and some uh-huh. stuff I just steal, right? And figuring out when to do which is something of an art and something of a necessity. Right. And I pulled out this, I, I had like a bunch of values I cared about and I had some sort of general statements about what we're trying to accomplish. So I just sort of Googled vision and values uh, and I ran across this format called V2Mom, which is from a company called Salesforce, uh-huh. um, which is different than your traditional vision statement because usually it's like you have a vision and then you have a mission of what you're going to do about it. Right. But what they have is they have a vision. This is the world we want to create. And then uh-huh. these are our values. That's the second V. Uh-huh. And then these are our methods. Uh-huh. And this idea is that like, hey, we have a vision. We don't have a clear mission. We're just going right. to do whatever it takes to accomplish that vision. But these are the values that will guide us. And after values is the methods, rather than first having a mission and then you have values, which is interesting, and that kind of fits where we're at. But what's yeah. funny is that uh, one is that they explicitly have the O is obstacles, which is something I was talking to somebody about like a few weeks ago. Is like, you know, people have all these great ideas for what they're going to accomplish, but like that uses an implicit model mental model of what's hard and then they put off the hard stuff until the end and then they're surprised that they fail. Uh-huh. And so the idea of like if you explicitly call it your obstacles up front, then you can right. manage them. Yeah. I think there's a Carl Jung quote that like whatever is unconscious controls us. Uh-huh. And the only way to you know grow as human beings is to make the unconscious explicit. Uh-huh. And so a lot of what I'm doing is that. So anyway, but the, the plus line of all this is that the last one is metrics. And you have to figure out like some things that you measure. Uh-huh. And in software engineering, people usually measure things like revenue or users or growth or right. story points, like how much you help. It's like, I actually don't care about any of those things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's like, yep. huh, what do I actually care about? And the thing that I came up with is, okay, I care a great deal about agency. Do people uh-huh. feel like they are in charge of their own destiny? That's kind of the, I, I become convinced that's the real benefit of our product is people agency over their own data. Uh-huh. And that's actually my, the reason I'm coming up with this process is, as the CEO said, we tend to play four-year-old soccer. Uh-huh. And that like, if you're four-year-old soccer, everyone just chases the ball everywhere. Right. 
because you don't know what your role is. And I said, okay, we need to have clear ownership. Like, I do this, and that other stuff is not my problem. So I can focus on making sure I do this thing really well because it's what I own. Right. And that's the idea of agency. So, like, okay, that's the first value is agency. And, like, we want to have a pro- – like, are we giving the engineers and the company – you feel like you own your problem and you can solve it the way that you think is best, not just doing what someone else tells you to do. Right. Um, and, you know, historically, that's kind of the um, uh, the antithesis of a command and control architecture. Because, uh-huh. like, well, if everyone just does what they want, how can you predict anything? Uh-huh. Uh, Ross was talking about how most systems are predicated on insecurity. Uh-huh. How do I, you know, I have to make sure people have impossible goals so they're being pushed to their limits. Right. Right. And, and the, so the corollary, the, the counterpoint he shared was that he worked in like a public utility where there's no external pressure and everyone just uh-huh. wasted all their energy on internal politics. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, you know, in fact, I, if I had to choose, I would rather be under extreme pressure from an external source than going crazy fighting internal politics. Right. Yeah. But neither is particularly healthy. Yeah. And so the idea is that the second letter is R, which is relationship. It's like, well, if you're a healthy, autonomous individual, but you're in deep relationship with your boss, with your salespeople, with your customers, then you will spontaneously want to do the thing that will make them happy. Uh-huh. Right? So the idea is that if you have a clear sense of what you own and you have healthy relationships, then you will right. naturally do good work. You don't uh-huh. need a lot of command and control and infrastructure to tell you, to make you do things. You just right. need good information so you know what to do. Right. And and so that was an interesting insight. But the, the interesting thing is that the third thing was joy. And uh-huh. then the fourth thing was impact. Uh-huh. So like, you know, do I have ownership of my work? Did I get what I need from other people and vice versa? Uh, and am I having fun? Uh-huh. And this was, the, this was the, the, the profound subversive thing I realized. Yeah. Is that if I have a good sense of who I am and I'm in the uh-huh. right relationship, then I already have joy and impact is the bonus. Right. If I am insecure in my relationships and my identity, then I uh-huh. feel like I need impact before I'm allowed to have joy. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking like that felt profound that we actually, and, and I'm still trying to explain this to our engineers and even to our managers, is like, yeah, like if we're in the right relationships, we should have joy and then impact is a bonus. Uh-huh. And that is, you know, massive culture shock. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, but like, I think that's actually how it's supposed to work. Uh-huh. And I think that was this idea that like, I want the impact to flow out of my joy versus like, I have to get these things done before I'm allowed to feel good about myself. Uh-huh. And anyway, that was the very long digression in response to your point about like, you know, hey, if it's time to do something, then God will make it time to do it. And if not, that's not my problem. I think it's the same. Yeah. Or at least we're trying to, trying to challenge the same sort of performance mentality 
of right. justifying ourselves by works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was on a call with some mission leaders at uh, seven this morning, and uh, uh, one of the guys was talking about the change that uh, the the experience he had on the mission field, where um, a lot of people, a lot of the missionaries trusted what they were doing to work, but they weren't really trusting the Holy Spirit. And uh, the way that that boxed them into, in fact, the lead article for this Mission Frontiers is kind of on the same theme, how people who go to the field, uh, knowing the right ways to make things work, uh, have, have problems because the uh what the methods don't fit that context yes so this missionary who uh, was among the first to go into albania uh has many several of the great movement leaders come and do there what they did in their own fields and turns out the albanians just wanted something different uh, yeah as a result of their culture and the the way that they've been you know labeled a yeah. Uh, uh, the first agnostic or atheistic nation in the world, and whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, the other interesting framework I heard, and I'm going to butcher it somewhat, which is this person was talking about love, joy, and peace in a novel way. And uh -huh. the way I heard it, which is probably not what he said, but I like the way I heard it, which was that. First comes love, where we just receive from God, right? Like a baby, right. you know, a weaned child at his mother's breast, right? Yeah. And second yeah. is joy, when we understand what it is that God has done for us. Uh huh. Like it, it, it's more like a uh, like a like a child, and then the where we feel the beating of God's heart, where we understand the rhythm. Yeah. Of how God works, and yeah. then the third is peace or shalom, where we be, where we align our lives with that to accomplish God's purposes in the world. Uh huh. And I was thinking about you know the the kind of the journey you've been on of you know this benevolent detachment or just resting in Jesus, and thinking about that as like the first move, like you need that first piece of just this deep emotional acceptance from God you know, at, at, at the heart level. And maybe the, and it's the, the way this framework resonated with me was the idea the second level is where it becomes part of your head, where you have an understanding of how it applies to all these other things. Right. And then the third move is the hand, where you are, because you are so deeply connected to God and you understand who you are and how God is using you, then you can act out of that deep security rather than uh, out of insecurity, trying to find security. Right. And I thought that was an interesting way to play with the ideas of uh, love, joy, and peace. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, anyway, in my own circumstances, in a different kind of flow. And what you were talking about where uh, in the business context where 
each one is just doing what they're supposed to do and not worrying about um, other things, I guess. Uh, I feel like I'm in that. In, I've, I've changed from trying to, being overly focused on trying to make my wife happy to mm. pressing into what God's given me to do, which includes loving and serving the household and taking initiative in ways that I had withdrawn from because it seemed like I often didn't get right what I was supposed to. But uh, we're in a yeah. new pattern where I'm taking initiative, I'm proposing plans, and I'm receiving input without feeling wounded or attacked or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Because your identity is not tied to your performance. Your performance yeah, or, is hopefully yeah. flowing out of your identity. Yeah. Or your actions not, are flowing out of your identity. Yeah. And it's not tied to the reaction that I get. Um, you know, Ooh. if the, if she's upset because I didn't do something this way, okay, you know, I'll learn from that. But I don't have to try and, you know, heal from that, uh, which I <laughs> overreacted to a lot of stuff through the years. So. Yeah, no, that's actually the thing that the, one of the transitions we're going through as a company is from a, I guess let's call it sales-led to product-led, is that uh -huh. in the sales-led model, like you're basically, if a, if a customer asks for something, you just do it. You know, mm -hmm. because you're in this place of fragility and insecurity, it's kind of like, I guess, maybe courtship or maybe the first date. Like the first date, you got to make sure you perform, right? Because they have no reason to trust you. You have to yep. demonstrate that you're willing to bend over backwards to make them happy. Uh -huh. So it's not a bad place to start, you know, because it's a, it's, but it's a really toxic place to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we're really trying to, you know, this is the, the, and like, you know, and I told the engineering manager, like, I know that you don't believe me yet and that's okay. Right. Because I say, yeah. I'm going to do all these things that it'll be fine, but, you don't have reason to believe me, but if you can think of things that I can do to demonstrate that I'm serious and that this will work, you know, let me know. Like, here's one thing we can try and drawing some boundaries and communicating some messages. And yeah. And then uh, he said something really good, which is like, Hey, let's just treat this as an experiment. Oh, but yeah. I have to tell you, like my, my, the, my great moment for me is that we talked about this new plan and we had the engineers, which are these Russian engineers, um, talking about, you know, the idea of time-based sprints. So rather uh, than like saying, just keep working on stuff, let's say we pick a date and we see what we can get done by then. And they all right. start talking about, well, it makes you feel guilty because everyone's pressuring you to get stuff done. You made these commitments. And it's like, first of all, thank you, because this is why I do startups, because it's the only way to get guys to talk about their feelings. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> right. And especially to get Russians to talk about their feelings, I feel like I have made a, a step towards world peace. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the second thing was that, like, I'm here as a priest to tell you there is no guilt. Like, uh -huh. we are fine as a company. Our customers are fine. Our business is fine. We want to spend this sprint, these four weeks, focusing on how do we help you guys learn how to function at top, um, at peak joy, right? Because uh -huh. if you are doing your best work, stuff that you believe in, that you yeah. believe will have the greatest impact on the business, and you own it, and you have everything you need to succeed, I think, A, you will be really happy, right. and B, you will deliver amazing stuff that will blow away our customers. 
Like, right. And this is
We just want to solve the problems that actually keep you guys from being a healthy, productive, knowledge-generating organization. Uh And we take a small cut enough to fund our development, and that's fine. And Uh because we don't have uh, venture capitalists breathing down our neck anymore because they all got tired and forgot about us five years ago, (laughs) like we can actually just focus on making our users happy. And that Mm -hmm. is this crazy super weapon we have that... um, this is why I feel like, um, and maybe this is just the after effects of the prednisone. I, I shouldn't need to, uh, discount that. But like, I just feel like we can't lose, and therefore, I can have grace enough for everyone. Like, I, 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 I am confident that we are, and, and like, this is the, the, the segue, I guess, is that like, I feel this way at work now. Like, yeah. I feel like God has set us up for success. I feel like we have already won. I feel uh-huh. like I already am everything I need to be to help everyone else succeed. So I don't need to prove myself. Uh-huh. Uh, I am not yet there with my family. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't have that level of emotional security and faith, yeah. but this is a gift from God that, you know, as over hopefully the next you know few days as this finalizes and over the next month as it plays out, um, right. If I'm right and God, I'm right about what God is doing, and I see it yeah. actually bear fruit. I'm hoping uh-huh. that will grow my faith um, and my security, so that I. Oops, you dropped out. For my wife and children. Yeah. Okay. Oof. It's uh, it was, uh, uh, relating to something you said in that stream. Uh, part of what I'm finding is as I'm working at rest, as I'm at rest in my work or working in my rest or or that's best described, that uh, my energy is not being consumed with worrying about what I'm not getting to. Or, mm. uh, and uh, I'm able when, you know, Jackie asked if I'm available to do the dishes to drop stuff that feels urgent that I would have said no, not right now, uh, and just take care of that and, uh, you know, let things unfold as they unfold as I uh, am trusting and doing what I feel led in, even if I can't rationally say, you know, this is the most valuable thing. I can I can reason why this would be the most valuable thing. Mm. I can still walk in, uh, and uh, you know I I uh, have long had sleep apnea, so I get drowsy at odd times. And I've just started yeah. taking that something to uh, as an indication to take a break from what I'm working on against the deadline, and trust that mm-hmm. you know put just put it back in God's hands. And, um, yeah. Go do some yard work or whatever else until I get through that. So, uh-huh. um, anyway, it's... Uh, Sorry, when you said apnea, it made me yawn. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this idea yeah. that... Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the word rational uh-huh. is kind of tied to the word ration. Yeah, right. You know, the idea of scarcity. Uh-huh. It's like, and it's true, like when you're in a time of scarcity, when you're facing hard choices, it's actually really powerful 
be, be able to emotionally decouple from the situation and analyze the numbers and make the hard choices of this is, you know, where you fight and where you flee. This is who lives and who dies. Right. right? That is why right. God gave us that faculty. But when yeah. we're in a situation of abundance, uh-huh. uh, when we're in a season of rejoicing, that rational part of our brain kind of gets in the way. Uh-huh. And that's actually the journaling I'm working through uh, today is um, um, this, you know, the part of my brain that like insists on reducing everything to numbers and rationality has to give up control. Right. And uh, I confronted that fact. I haven't figured out how yet. That's kind of the next chapter in my saga. Uh But I think this is the thing is that like, hey, it's not like this part of me is not useful. So this part of me should not be in charge. Yeah. Um, but but it I, it likes to be in charge because it feels safe, right? When because when you're rational and analytic, other people are just numbers to be manipulated. They can't hurt right. you. Yeah. Um, they can't control you. And but the problem is, of course, they can't they can't hug you, right? They can't love you. Right. <laughs> and. This is this vulnerability thing. I think we talked about that um, at some point. I've been talking about different people. Is like I feel like, like the way that I save the world, the way that I save my family, the way that I save my soul, is by actually learning to trust God enough to be vulnerable. Uh huh. Like if I can do that, like everything else is just technique. Right. But that's the hard spiritual work, the emotional labor. Um, you know, being vulnerable, yeah, being emotionally present, like not calculating whether it makes sense to do the dishes, but just doing it because you feel full and abundant and joyful. Yeah. So vulnerable to you doesn't just mean uh, being more transparent in the way you talk, for example. No, because sometimes I can be transparent in the ways that are the opposite of vulnerability. Right. Often is more, for me at least, usually the most vulnerable thing is saying nothing Uh and just listening and seeing the person and not dissenting. Uh Right. That actually makes me feel more vulnerable. Yeah. Because I can easily be transparent with my left brain in reporter Uh mode, which has no emotional cost. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing I was thinking about in terms of reason is that it may depersonalize others, but it also is simply, or for me anyway, the experience is it's a risk calculation trying to minimize risk, but it can't eliminate risk. Where Mm -hmm. trusting that God has things under control in a sense leads me to a space where risk is eliminated, not by my power or greatness but by the the man the person whose hands i'm in right 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 and the sense that it's that like it doesn't mean that you won't get hurt right right but it means that it doesn't matter even if you get hurt right right it sort of transcends risk or denatures risk or something like that 
re- reasoning is trying to make things work out for the best. Trying to manage risk. Right. Yeah. Or rather avoid than, risk, really. Rather than casting my cares on him because he cares for me. Right. Yeah. Uh, my my two-syllable definition of faith is wise risk. It's wise? When I know God well enough and know myself well enough uh-huh. that I can place bets that to others look risky. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is the next frontier for you? Hmm. Well, um, I'm overall, I'm processing currently how to help other believers see how rapidly God's um, fruit is multiplying around the world in contexts that we're not aware of. Uh, Patrick, okay. Johnson, you may have heard of. Yeah, Patrick I remember Johnson, him. Operation World. I may yep. have already said this to you, but I was on a call with him and some others where he said oh, wow. that from ni- 1960 to 2000, the believers or evangelicals outside the U.S. multiplied mm-hmm. six times as fast as, as outside of the West. Uh, multiplied six times as fast as believers, evangelicals in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting lost in your left brain narrative here, Robbie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, his comment was, but nobody was aware of what was going on. It all just mm-hmm. exploded. Uh, you know, the the number of believers around the world exploded, but nobody right. was aware. And there's right. a and Operation I, World and the whole frontier movement in the 80s and 90s. Kind and of I think brought that into th- the mainstream of evangelicalism, at least. Right. So I, I think I believe I perceive that something even grander is unfolding right now as the spirit of God's moving and how to uh-huh. put that forth in a way that and many others will be able to grasp it is the frontier that I'm working on, I would say. Right. So help me if I could. If, would you mind if I gently probe on this a little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, so why do you want to do that? Um, well, multiple reasons. I uh, I want to accelerate the fulfillment of God's purpose, and I think in part he's waiting on his body to wake up to what he's doing and join him in it. Um, second, I grieve for the millions of believers who are uh, unaware and looking at a dark and decaying world with a sense of hopelessness and despair rather than Mm -hmm. excitement and joy about what's to come. And I want to see Jesus return. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good. If we can start with that, I want to probe another layer on those answers. Okay. All right. So let's uh, agree with the fact that there are people who feel a lot of despair. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there are people who are even Christians yeah. who feel uh, that they are in defeat. So what I heard you say was that if people had information about how rapidly the gospel was spreading in other parts of the world, your hope would be that that would um, improve that or address that. 
Yeah. Is that correct? Jesus, Jesus said something about when you see these signs appearing, uh, look up for the day of your redemption is drawing near. For calling you right. Well, I mean, yes, the, which is um, so the circles I hang out in uh-huh. interpret that as oh, the deliverance we're having is that the world is going to get worse and worse. And the best we can hope for is that Jesus returns soon. And I don't think that's where you're going with this. No, that, that thinking leads kind of to what's been called an arc mentality where you are just yes, hiding. Exactly. Inside. Right. Right. So what, so, right. So, that, so let me go for the next layer of why. So what effect are you hoping to produce? Yeah. Well, involvement, engagement, participation, and the, good works God's prepared in advance for us as they particularly as they relate to his promise. Okay. That's all the families of the Right. So here's the interesting okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that you're feeling joy because you see God doing these amazing things. Uh-huh. And your hope is that if other people see what you see, they will feel joy and be energized to also do good things. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Is that uh, fair? Close. Enough, yeah. So here's a really interesting fact uh, or a framework I heard um, that's been haunting me. It was actually from a um, an investor. Actually, he uh-huh. and his son were giving a podcast, and his father is this old-school bond investor, and his son's a young tech investor, and they were right. dialoguing about changes in the industry. And he said, he said a couple, there's a bunch of really profound things. I need to put a blog post or at least a, yeah. a dialogue with somebody about this. But one of the things he said was, actually, the son started out as a poker player in the early days uh-huh. of online poker. Uh-huh. And he said, the funny thing is, in the early days of online poker, there were tons of people who had no idea what they were doing. So if you were uh-huh. just smart enough to know that you would always play aces, only bet when you have aces and kings, you would just clean uh-huh. up. Uh-huh. Right? That was the dominant strategy. Uh-huh. Right, because that was only. But what happened was, is that the people who were even smarter would realize, and so eventually the dominant strategy would get socialized, and everyone uh-huh. would know that's the way to win. And the uh-huh. old dominant strategy became the new exploitable strategy. Right. The thing that everyone did because it was the smart thing to do became the stupid thing to do, precisely because everyone did it. And in a complex adaptive system, the smarter people. You know, or the, the, the clever ones are the ones who can break the frame of reference and realize, oh, what used to be smart is now stupid. Uh-huh. And so this I, idea I, tra- that, I track the analogy, but I don't see the relevance. Uh, okay, but, yeah, no, 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 that was one really interesting point. And then okay. this is the second interesting point that he made, which is that when people make a mistake, like yeah. in an investment, there's usually uh-huh. two reasons either a lack of information or prejudice. Ah. So, for example, he made his money, the elder guy made his money buying what we now call junk bonds. Right. Because at the time they said, well, the, 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 good, thing, the good bonds, the ones where companies have stable, predictable cash flows and, you know, right. a high, you know, good financials, those are called investment-grade bonds. Yeah. And everything else is called... Uh, you know, junk bonds. Right. And it's like, but he grew up in a world where it was like, these are good companies to invest in, full stop. These are bad companies to invest in, full stop. Right. Right. What he discovered, 
because he made a, his first part of his career, he was investing in what they called the Nifty 50, the top 50 companies that were great companies. And so mm-hmm. everyone would invest in them. And eventually ah. the price got bid so high right. that they were unrealistic and eventually they crashed. And that's why he got fired and had to go find a job as a bond trader. Mm-hmm. And then he realized the flip side was true, is that these other junk bonds, okay, they're not great, but there is no good bonds or bad bonds. There's no good investment or bad investment. There's just a good or bad investment at the current price. Right. And this idea that like, well, okay, this is a quote unquote bad investment, but at this price, it's a good investment. You buy a hundred of these, only yeah. you know, 10% of them are gonna go bankrupt and you're still ahead because the price is so low. Or this is a great right. company, but it's priced too high. And the idea is that there's good and bad. And, mm-hmm. the, and what it really is, is that, is that, so at first there was the problem that people didn't even have information about how to price these things. Right. Because if you had more information, you could make, the, but the, the second thing that worked in his favor, and this is a fascinating idea, which I think is very, this is the point I was going to make, is that when people make a poor decision, it is due to either informa- a lack of information or prejudice. Right. And so what happens in the modern market, because as information gets more and more abundant, prejudice uh-huh. becomes more and more important. Right. And the thing that I wonder about is that information, sharing new information is cheap, right? right? It is a left brain activity with enormous technological acceleration. But in my circles, I have come to the conclusion that the reason people live in fear and despair is not strictly speaking a lack of information about how good God is. It is because right. of prejudice. It's okay. because of their emotional filters. Uh-huh. And I feel like in the 80s and 90s, right, there was an information deficit. And so the Ralph winners of this world, the Patrick Johnstones, by filling that information void, Boy. they were able to achieve a dramatic improvement in people's awareness and understanding of the gospel and what God was doing. Uh-huh. Right? The problem we have now, I think, and you know, it's, it's a question, you know, it's possible that in your circles there's a pocket where this is different. Right. But first of all, people are saturated with orders of magnitude more information right. than they were back then. Right? And I also feel like the problem that most people are facing, maybe not your target market, but certainly the people that I go to church with, like more information by itself is, and this is a painful lesson I am kind of internalizing after repeated failures, right? Is that giving people information when their problem is prejudice actually makes the problem worse. Yeah. Because you end up actually triggering their defensive reactions and so they end up actually doubling down on their prejudice and writing you off. Uh-huh. Right? This is the whole pearls before swine thing. Yeah. And so, you know, the, and this is like I was talking about this with the pastor's wife after a sermon on Sunday, was this question of, like, what does it actually take to unwind prejudice? 
or you know uh-huh. spiritual strongholds, depending on what metaphor you or framing you want to use, right? It's like it's not information; it's actually something like sin, right? Right, and so you know, um, yeah. So that's wonder I have. Yeah, well, it's a legitimate wonder. I, uh, uh, there, we've, you know, in the 1970s, Ralph Winter uncovered this blind spot that we were looking at getting mm-hmm. the gospel in every country. Yeah. And we were, as a melting pot country, we were insensitive to and unaware of the deep, invisible walls between different uh, people, groups, ethne, in Mm -hmm. the various countries. And so 60% of the world's population were in groups where the gospel hadn't taken root. And Mm -hmm. the dynamics of the situation were nobody was aware of, well, there were missionaries on the field aware of them, but they weren't thinking beyond their own field, and they were working with the believers that were there in the cultures where the church right. They didn't was. have the right mental constructs to appreciate what the challenges were. So the you know, genuine question is, are we in a parallel situation where the general discussion of unreached people groups, um, 40% of which do have churches and movements among them where believers from the outside can go and work with believers. And so that's where most missionaries go. And I do have, we've replicated this situation where now it's down to 25% of the world are overlooked by the dynamics of the situation. Uh, so that's, that's what, what I'm seeing, what others, uh, and it seems like there's a growing catching of this that, uh, influencers are saying, yeah, this is significant in a way. So, uh, what I've really been working on with this Mission Frontiers is equipping those influencers who want to introduce these this awareness to their constituency with better tools for and clearer ways of expressing that. Yeah, and I think the question is, I mean, obviously you're working with a subset of a subset, right? Because obviously right. you're working kind of within the broader evangelical world, especially working within the missiological world. Yep. And then you're working within the sort of self-conscious practitioners of missiology, right? So not just you're one of the mill missionary who's just going through the motions because of their church, but they're actually right. engaged with the same professional development. And so, so you know, I, yeah, I think, you know, is that a fair? Well, and, and partly, you know, there are leaders of movements who are seeing movements. Now there's 2,000 around the world with 115 million disciples. Um, if they are, if they're just looking at, uh, you know, how can we make the gospel spread rapidly among lost people? But they're mostly working in cultures where there are already believers, and they're still overlooking the what we now call frontier people groups. Um, will this kind of information help them to be more conscious of the frontier people groups? So we got an email this morning from somebody who's with uh, Wycliffe, SIL, uh, for the Sahel region, Africa. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, we've really embraced this idea of frontier. He has really embraced this idea of frontier people groups with the 400 groups or whatever in his area. And he's introducing this concept in October at a, a regional meeting and hoping and asking us to pray. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 
right? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. So okay. Right. So yeah. The when you were talking about people who are struggling with despair and gloom, I was thinking more of people, the ordinary people in the pews in my church on Sunday. Well, and that's what um, I was referring to when I when I mentioned right, that. Right. So, 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 so right. Right. So, so I think it's worth like de decoupling those two, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I think that like so the professional missionary who has a um, has multiple bits of information about missions, yeah. right? So they have many, right? Is that they have room for, they have a cognitive space to like sort these things out. But your average yeah. Houston Christian has like one bit right. of information about missions, right? And yeah. the, the, the problem that I am dealing with quite a bit, and I've been, actually I had a long talk with a friend of mine about this last night, um, if I can digress. Um, we had a prayer time at our church on Sunday and someone was praying for the kids of our church and we pray and they prayed that like that they will know God's word and they will believe that it's true and they will obey it. Uh -huh. And I just, and I just, it just struck me like, Oh my God, they are praying that my children would become good Pharisees. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I just like I I, I I I did I think the appropriate response I just fell flat on my face on the floor and started weeping. Yeah, yeah. Because like I literally did not know what to do. Uh huh. And so after the premiere on Tuesday, she mentioned this to me, and I said, "Look, I got to be honest with you. Like I grew up when you did. Like we lived in a simpler world, and I wish my kids didn't have to face the temptations and the challenges they face." Right. But. I got to be honest with you, I am less afraid of them being seduced by the world than that I am of them, um, than the church misrepresenting Jesus. Uh, uh -huh. Right? Because, like, I mean, Pharisees are great. They love the Bible. They yeah. love God. They sacrifice. They tithe. They give. They worry about personal purity. There's a lot to be said for Pharisees. There's just yeah. this little detail that they end up killing Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And like in our churches, I feel like we have lost the ability to distinguish between law and gospel. Right. And we think we're serving Jesus when we're really just celebrating glorifying the law. Uh -huh. And I said, this terrifies me. And she goes, well, you, know, you shouldn't be afraid. And I said, well, you know, fear is not the wrong word. But I realized, like, wait a second. You're giving me grief for being afraid of God when you're praying basically out of fear of the world. Uh -huh. Right? And yeah. the and I said, you know, and so I think, and, you know, at the end of it, she sent me an email saying, you know, I'm praying. For, and I said, this, this is what, I, you know, and, like, it, it breaks my heart because, like, sin does suck. Right? There are also yeah. horrible consequences to sin. I don't want to minimize that at all. But, right. like, I think the command of Scripture is fear not those who can destroy the body. You're right. the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, right? And yeah. it's like, so I feel like I have to grieve that vision of the world that I uh -huh. grew up in. Right. And ask, what is the challenge my children will face to follow and to find and follow Jesus? And am I willing to give up everything, including their safety, for that? Yeah. And so I told her the two things I want to, that that I would like to ask you to pray for. 
is not for them to know the law and the love and the word and all that, but to know deeply that they are loved and to know the power of the blood of Jesus. And if they're going to sin, I'd rather they sin now, faster, sooner, where they have an environment around them to show them the power of the blood of Jesus then kill myself trying to protect them from something which will probably fail. Right. And then not be there for them when that happens because I put all my energy into trying to prevent this from happening. Uh-huh. And and this this is the this is the thing that is um And I, I, like she, I think she heard me, which I really appreciate. And she wrote back and said, you know, I, I will pray for your children as you ask. Or I did pray yeah. for your children as you asked, which meant a lot to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and like, this is, the thing, is that this is the thing that I think actually will solve that problem. Right? I mean, I don't have a clear, repeatable formula for it, but at least I have a data point. It's like, okay, that... I was able to share my story of the journey I am still going through, right? Mm -hmm. This is a thing I struggle with. It hurts, right? Mm -hmm. It is hard. I hate it. But like, and, and I feel like if people, I think about it as, um, at a friend who's a libertarian who talks about how, you know, Hayek talked about that in order to have a good market, you have to have uh, law, labor, and language. And I said, you know, and the thing is, most of his disciples only talk about the law and labor. Nobody talks about language. And the reason I think is that uh, law is about tears, labor is about sweat, but language is about blood. Is that the way that you create language, the way that you create words that have emotional power is through sacrifice, right? Through narratives of passion and pain. And bloodless information can solve many problems um, cheaply, but superficially. Huh. Right. And, you know, one of the things that kills me about our church is we are addicted to bloodless information. Huh. Right. You know, sermons and books and all these things. And it's like, right. okay, if you're pro- there are problems that can be solved with information, but it's so cheap and easy that we get spiritually flabby. And when we ask people for blood, they're shocked. Uh, right? It's like, excuse me, like, isn't there a reason we wear this thing called a cross? Uh, <laughs> like, you know, like, like this, this, this always puzzles me. I mean, I'm, I, maybe it doesn't puzzle me. It, 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 it used to always freak me out when I would ask people to die. And they look at me like I'm crazy. It's like, you know, like, but like, you know, well, I know that's what you want, but like, you know, like, but, but, but like, 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 isn't the whole point of being a Christian to take up your, you know, to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? Like, yeah. aren't the whole, isn't the whole thing we signed up for to lay down our lives for others? Isn't the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the blood of Jesus supposed to remind us of what it actually looks like to be Christ? Right. And, you know, I, I, I worry, and I guess that's the, maybe I'll go from a wonder to a challenge, 
right? Because uh -huh. I know you're going through this deep, you know, emotional, sacrificial journey of dying to your performance and, um, you know, trying to really live emotionally present and vulnerable before God. Right. Maybe there's a way, rather than talking about the story and the facts with your left brain, to tell the emotional journey with your right brain of what this has meant for you and how it's tying into this deeper heart transformation, which would uh -huh. actually be more impactful. In the uh, article that I'm working on, I may be actually trying to do what you just described. I start off with a partial confession, which I say I'll get back to at the end of the story. And I start off with the image. Uh, imagine uh, a refugee who polishes your wood floor with a rented machine for you, um, but doesn't realize that it's supposed to be plugged in and turned on, you know, finishes the job. <laughs> by manual force without uh, using the power that's available. And uh, for much of my career in mission strategy, I think I've worked really hard, but neglected the power source that was available. Yeah. Um, that Pulse doesn't flat. resonate that much with me emotionally. Yeah, okay. I mean, the mechanical act of plugging something in, there's no blood in that. Uh-huh. Right? It's very mechanistic. Yeah. Right? right? The story you were telling me earlier of, like, I have struggled with this issue of, you know, I'll, I'll just use my words because I can't tell your story in your own words, but, like, where I, I saw my life as I was working towards joy, hoping that if I did all the right things, then I would feel good about myself and feel at peace with God. Uh -huh, right? right. And I'm and I'm at this place now where I realize like, no, I need to actually let go of that part of myself uh -huh. and surrender to God and come out yeah. of joy. Yeah. Right? And again, I don't know how to segue that into the informational point you want to make about movement. Right, but right. I think that, like, like you know, like I said, I'm I'm a one note choir. Like the 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 deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me thing is to me the heart of the gospel. Yeah, right. And if you can share a story of you, whether or not you use any of those words, but where they see you denying yourself, taking up the cross, and following Jesus, uh -huh. right? right, and they see that they can see themselves in, in where you were before right? and then see how Christ is doing something in your heart that's making you a different person, uh -huh. you know? And then like that to me is the thing that actually gets people not just over the information deficit, but the prejudice, right? The right. spiritual stronghold. Yeah. And again, I, I don't know if that's possible enough for work. I don't know what the time frame is, but that's the challenge I wanted to leave you with. Yeah. All right. All right. I got to get back to my wife who's now home. Let me pray for you real quick if I can. Yeah, please. All right. Lord, I just thank you for this time with Robbie. I pray you bless him and his family, that he would find peace and joy in you, that his interaction with his families would be full of that, and that this article he's writing, that the cross of Christ would somehow be central to the story he's telling. 
I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, Ernie. Have a good evening. All right. Take care, Robbie. Good night. Thank mm-hmm. you.